the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation, a program providing help and information for our caregivers who are vital to the health and welfare of so many people in our community. You can hear Caregiver SOS On Air Sundays at 6 p.m. on 930 a.m. The Answer. And now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, thank you very much, and welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel. You know, Carol is a nationally known gerontologist. She is chairman of the board of the National Council on Aging, executive director of the WellMed Charitable Foundation, and in her spare time, we're delighted to have her here as co-host for Caregiver SOS On Air. This is a big month. This is a big month. It is National Occupational Therapy Month. It, which is a fantastic month to celebrate. You know, I love occupational therapists. I think that most people don't realize the crazy good things that they do and how much they can help. So and that's my theory. And we're going to talk about it. And we're going it. to talk about it. And with two specialists in the field coming up in just a few minutes right here on Caregiver SOS On Air. But first, you have the answer to a question that many people woke up this morning wondering about. What are the five foods that are bad for you? That are bad for your brain, not yes. just bad for you, but your brain in, in particular. So I, I ran across this article. It was originally in grandparents.com. Uh, probably you do all because the fun reading. Grandparents, <laughs> you know, give these foods to their, their grandchildren. Um, so number one on the list is white rice. So all that Chinese food that I like, I eat everything on this list. I just want to <laughs> say that up front. So white rice is high glycemic, and high glycemic foods are not good for your brain. They can actually cause depression. Ooh. So you want to lay off the, um, you know, th that was from based on a 2015 study. So if you if you have depression anyway, you certainly don't want to aggravate it by eating white rice. But white rice, sorry, brown rice actually tastes better. Um, it's a whole, you know, it's got much better fiber and all kinds of nutrients for you. And so many people live on white rice around the world, um, which just tells you about the state of nutrition in many countries. Um, the second one is one that a friend of mine who is the Health Science Center here in San Antonio used to just absolutely thought was poison. She said it's poison in a glass, orange juice. Our dentist said that to us. Well, our little kids get, have never had juice. So they've never had orange juice at no, all. Yeah, and no, it used to be, you bad. know, that was the staple on the breakfast table. Um, but it's it's really high sugar again um, and, and just goes straight, you know, into your bloodstream. So, sorry, no on the orange juice. Not good for your brain. Um, here's the other one. I don't, ha I don't. okay, so yes to the white rice. I eat it all the time. No to orange juice. Cheese, yes to cheese. White cheese all the time, too? Any kind of cheese. So, really? Yes, cheese followed by pizza are the two biggest sources of saturated fat in the American diet. Wow. And cheese pizza, of course, is being what my son eats, which I guess, is that a double bang? I don't know. I'm not sure. Huh. Um, it's been shown to injure your hyper hypothalamus of your brain. To all that high fat because it can it can actually um, break the brain blood barrier, which means that bad toxins get actually your brain is actually protected by a barrier that doesn't let toxins into the brain regardless of what you know goes into your blood. But cheese can actually that high saturated fat can actually penetrate that. I don't think I wanted to know. I know that. I'm making a squishy. You can't see my face on the radio, but it's I'm a making squishy a face. face. It's yes. a squishy face, um, and it can lead to clogged arteries. All right, and. The, the next one will not be a surprise, but yes, I eat them too. Donuts. I can't imagine you eating donuts. No, I, donuts. Really? Yeah, donuts. I'm sorry. I didn't. Ice cream does nothing for me, but you wave a donut in front of me. You must do a ton of flamingo dancing because you don't have an ounce of fat. Well, uh, well that's very kind, but yes. Anyway, um, so in terms of brain danger, danger, donuts, bad. eating too much of any fried food, it's got saturated fat. It has cholesterol. Um, and, you know, again, with the fats disrupting the 
the brain barrier. Uh, and so there actually is studies between co- bad cholesterol, like they have in donuts, and increased risk of Alzheimer's disease. Ooh. So for anybody who's concerned about Alzheimer's disease, what's good for your heart is good for your head. And certainly high-fat foods are not good for your heart, and they're not going to be good for your brain either. Eat broccoli instead. <laughs> That's right, because, wow, what a choice. Would you like this sugary sweet donut or broccoli? Exactly. I know. That's such an easy choice. All right, the last food of the five foods, the four that I eat, here's Bad the last one. Bad for your brain. One. Bad for your brain is popcorn. But it's microwave popcorn, so maybe I'm off the hook. No, uh, you're not. So microwave popcorn has trans fats in it, which are actually worse than the saturated fat we were talking about earlier in the cheese. But Orville Redenbacher wouldn't do that to us. Well, you need to read. There's some really scary studies on microwave popcorn. Really? Um, And so what you need to do is read the label because not all of them have the trans fats, um, but most of them do. So please read the packages. Um, So the other big offenders in the along with trans fats in the microwave popcorn category are refrigerated dough like for cookies refrigerated pizza like for pizza stick margarine frosting in the microwave popcorn the people that ate those foods tested worse on memory tests um and there's again it's just those trans fats are bad 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 what'd you Uh, say about popcorn popcorn good bad no it's microwave popcorn so that, you know, some kidding you. Oh, bad. It's bad. Ron. Thank you. Bad. By the way, if you've just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air brought to you by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. And in just a couple of moments, we have two special guests. Occupational Therapy Month is what we're celebrating. And Bridget Piernick yoder and Autumn Clegg are with us. Both occupational therapists will tell you what they do and where they hang out. All of that coming up on Caregiver SOS on air. So five bad foods avoid now. Uh, you happen to love robots. I do love robots. I know that. But we, We're going to talk about that next week. Okay. It was a tease <laughs> for next week. That was a tease week. for next week. Yeah. Robots. Okay. You're into robots. Now you're going to share with us seven foods that make you hungrier. Yes, so we talked about bad foods for your brain, also from grandparents.com. So why are we on a caregiver show talking about weird foods? Uh, Probably because all of us eat them. Caregivers are decision makers for, you know, our loved one's foods. And it might be interesting to know these seven foods that make you hungrier. Okay, that means you're going to have to get up more often and feed your loved one more often. Oh, Um, that's a good point. So salted snacks. What's interesting about this is that they act like an opiate in your brain. So you can do hard drugs or just eat those salted peanuts that taste really good. And your brain, you know, you can't just eat one for a reason. Um, And and so that's salted snacks. That's that potato chip maker's commercial. Bet you can't eat one. Uh, the salt makes you thirsty, which can also lead to drinking more beverages of Coke or alcohol or something else than you really want. Um, and natural foods would be way better than really highly salted foods. So, you know, if you don't want to eat nuts, you know, go to, um, you know, have some nice, you know, unsalted nuts that don't taste as good. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry. No. Okay, so the next unsalted with sugar. Yeah, unsalted <laughs> with sugar. And while you're at it, avoid the the um, artificial sweeteners because real sugars register in your brain is like you're satisfied. Artificial sweeteners don't. So you know, I knew a, I actually knew a CEO that I worked for once. He drank a case a case of um, you know Coke Zero, Coke whatever it is, a diet Coke every day. And a case. All, a, ca- a case, literally a case wow. every day. He just nonstop all day long. Um, and he was never satisfied. And, you know, he had all this weight gain. So real sugars, you know, actually reward your brain in small doses. It's better than the artificial sweeteners. Um, white bread and pasta makes you hunger, hungrier because there's really nothing in it it's after they refined all those. Yeah, the flours, it's high. In, it's a high glycemic index. Um, it's easily converted to sugar in your bloodstream. And so whole grains, good old fiber, is going to keep you filled up faster. It's a dinner of champions, white bread and pasta. There you, I know. I, I can think of it in my family. <laughs> um, alcohol. So alcohol's high in calories, also high in carbs. Um, and alcohol makes you lose your inhibitions. So if you are planning on losing weight or planning on eating sensibly, that's going to go to the wind, you know, after a drink or two. Um, so I thought that was interesting. 
MSG, you don't hear as much about MSG anymore, monosodium glutamate, um, as you used to. It's that additive in Chinese food that you can ask them to please hold it. But it actually sneaks into other foods under other names. So if you look on a package and it says hydrolyzed protein, autolyzed yeast, glutamic acid, or yeast extract. And I've seen yeast extract. That's MSG. Is MSG. It's the same thing. Gives me a headache. Well, it can give you a headache, um, and it's in chicken nuggets, it's in canned soups, it's in, you know, things that you would not expect. So check the ingredients. You may be getting some NSG, and it makes you, uh, it speeds you, you know, makes you hungrier because it's less processed. Talking about the seven foods that make you hungrier. The seven foods that make you hungrier. um, So juice is another one. We talked about orange juice, bad for your brain, also can make you hungrier because of all those you know, those big carbs. So the bottom line is when you're craving all of these foods that really make you hungry or aren't good for you, um, you don't just grab something. You really need to kind of plan your snacks ahead of time. If you're a caregiver, plan what you want to have in your diet and what you want your loved one to have in the diet so that you're not, you know, contributing to the, either their illness, their diabetes, their depression, or to their hunger. Um, you know, you just have to Food is, you are what you eat. Didn't I hear that someplace? Yeah, me too. you yeah. got to think about it. you got to think about it. So here's a question for you. We know that mommy's day out is great if you got little kids. What about adult daycare? Is that good for the care recipient and the caregiver? Well, I like to talk about adult daycare because it's such an underutilized service. A lot of people um, have misconceptions about adult daycare. But a recent study uh, that came out uh, was showing that adult daycare, yes, it's good for both people um, because you can, the caregiver obviously is going to get a break. Um, And we know that stress, prolonged stress, actually changes your immune system, makes caregivers uh, more susceptible to heart disease, to stroke, to diabetes, to all those bad things. Um, but the, the stressful nature of caregiving and that feeling of being burned out. And there was a study that measured how caregivers felt after they had taken their loved one to adult daycare. And the interesting thing was, yes, after they took them on the days they had adult daycare, their, the cortisol in their brains, which is the stress hormone that's released, was actually reduced. So that burnt out feeling, it's, just, it's not just a feeling, it actually is less. The really interesting thing was, they didn't have to drop them off yet. It was just daycare day, and wow, the cortisol yeah. went no, down. Knowing it's coming. Just knowing that it's coming, knowing it's daycare day, and their stress levels went down. So, you know, just knowing, having a plan to reduce your stress can actually help reduce your stress. So adult daycare is a great service. Well, we are flat out of time for this segment. You've got one we'll have to pick up next week. Is well, boogieing good for you, That's dancing. right. If you want to know if you're boogie, you know, Tune in if next it's week. still good to boogie, next week. That and robots coming your way on Caregiver SOS on air at 930 a.m. The answer, hey, celebrate. It is, are you ready for this? I think you know this, National Occupational Therapy Month. Ten years ago, Dr. George Rapier founded the WellMed Charitable Foundation. His goal, to support seniors and caregivers. Today, the WellMed Charitable Foundation has contributed millions to the local senior programs on wellness, prevention, and living with chronic illness. Their programs improve the lives of our aging population and the people who care for them. Programs like Caregiver Teleconnection. Caregiver Teleconnection is a free, bilingual, and confidential program connecting caregivers and family members to information and support through the telephone. Each Caregiver Teleconnection telelearning session is hosted by professional facilitators and experts, giving caregivers the opportunity to connect with and share with others in a similar situation. With Caregiver Teleconnection, learning and support is just a phone call away. Find out more at 866-390-6491 or go to caregivertelekinection.org. We're going to spend some time talking about what is an incredibly important occupation and profession called occupational therapy. It is indeed Occupational Therapy Month. I'm Ron Aaron. We are so pleased you are with us here on Caregiver SOS On Air, along with our co-host Carol Zerniel. We welcome our very special guests, 
occupational therapist Bridget Piernik Yoder and Autumn Clegg. Both are specialists in uh, what is a very important profession. Bridget is an associate professor and distinguished teaching professor in the Department of Occupational Therapy at the UT Health Science Center. And Autumn is a clinical assistant professor of occupational therapy. Her expertise includes neurorehabilitation of adults and amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, ALS. And that's a disease nobody wants. So thank you both for coming in and spending time with us. Good to see you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. looking right at Autumn, but I'm going to ask the first question uh, directed at uh, Bridget. And and the question is, uh, for those who don't know, give us the 101. What is occupational therapy and who are occupational therapists? Sure. So occupational therapy is a really exciting and vibrant profession. And our focus is on the things that people need or want or expected to do every day or their daily occupation. So that's where the term actually comes from. And so uh, we work to maximize the well-being and quality of life of our clients and our communities through effective solutions that help people participate in their daily activities. So what does that mean? What do you, what do, you do Yeah, with So that could be anything from helping a person take care of themselves. That could be helping them return to work or school after an injury or an accident or um, an illness. We work with people across the lifespan. Occupational therapists work with um, children and neonates and school-age children as well as adults who have developmental conditions or who acquire disabilities or conditions. Now a neonate is? So um, an infant that was born perhaps prematurely and has some conditions or some health considerations um, due to premature birth. And so occupational therapists can work in a hospital, in an acute care setting, in an inpatient rehab setting, a clinic, a school, all in different community settings as well. well what led you to the field? Um, I became very interested, actually, at a young age. I um, had a friend who had a sister who had a developmental uh, condition and first learned of occupational therapy and certainly explored other careers and always came back to occupational mm. therapy, really because it has a, such a strong emphasis in science and anatomy and the biological sciences, but also psychology. So it's a very holistic profession, focuses on very practical strategies for people, and it's really exciting to, to see people return to the things that they need or want to do in their life. Now we're going to talk to Autumn in just a minute, but one of the things that uh, that you do is so important, and for especially caregivers who uh, may live in a home that may not be perfectly set up uh, for someone at risk of falling. Uh, you go into homes and do assessments. Uh, we absolutely do, and occupational therapists are really uniquely qualified to have a perspective to work with a family and look at what things may help support that person's function because we look at the person's needs or abilities, we look at the context or the environment, and we look at their daily occupations. So we may have different approaches that we can provide suggestions or education working with the client and the family to look at things that might make things safer for the person or the caregiver to reduce the risk of injury or to help improve that person's functional level in the home. So what's the difference between occupational therapy and physical therapy? Right. And that, that's a very common question. And we do work very closely in many settings. So the emphasis in physical therapy tends to be uh, focused on uh, mobility and strengthening. Where occupational therapists, we're working on daily activities and daily occupations. So because of that, we work very closely together along with with other rehabilitation professionals or other allied health professionals like speech-language pathologists, but we do have a different emphasis. Now, are there other areas of specialty that occupational therapists focus on, or are you all generalists? No. Um, so, so some definitely stay in general practice. Some will work with children and adults as well, but there are a lot of specialties in occupational therapy. Some occupational therapists become certified hand therapists. Some, like Autumn and myself, really specialize in adult neurorehabilitation. Some work in pediatrics. There's a multitude of specialty settings. And Autumn, nice to have you here as well. We Thank really you. appreciate you coming in. Uh, Autumn Clegg, occupational therapist as well. And and one of the things that I, I read in your bio was that you, you spent time helping folks with what are really serious debilitating diseases like Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS. Right. Uh, what led you to that? Um, actually, when I came to the Health Science Center, the neurologist, um, Dr. Jackson, um, was putting together or gaining members of her team, and she was really looking for those providers that had an interest in that. And like you said, you know, ALS is a horrible disease, and it 
it takes a different mindset of working with patients and their families because we really work on the aspect of caregiving with them. You know, as they lose the ability to take care of themselves, we're training the caregivers how to help them um, to benefit the client as well as not to injure the caregiver in those aspects. Because with ALS, uh, the brain is the last part of your body to go. So you know what's happening to you. Um, The majority of the time, yes. There are some cognitive impairments that now come along with ALS that they're realizing. um, But as a whole, most of the time, yes. And training the caregiver, this is a show uh, directed at caregivers. So uh, for a caregiver who uh, may be providing help for a patient uh, with ALS, get a hold of an occupational therapist early on. Oh, definitely, because, you know, you don't want to be in that crisis mode of now I need to help them to get to the toilet and I don't know how to do it, where we can focus early on and, and set up those stages to help both the client and the caregiver during that entire process. I mean, Carol, you've seen folks who are uh, much smaller, for example, than the person they're caring for. How in the world do they get them in and out of bed and into a bathroom? Well, I mean, that's exactly what she's talking about right. is so critical because there are either techniques or there are, um, you know, aids that can help uh, in some of the transferring and some of that heavy work because you don't want to, you know, wear out the caregiver. We talk a lot about stress and the mental burden of caregiving, but the occupational therapist, you all are involved, you know, and see the impact on the physical strain of caregiving when somebody's had a stroke um, or an injury and they're trying to come back from that and they need, you know, physical assistance. That's a really difficult situation for the family. For folks who have had strokes as well, both uh, you and Bridget work with stroke patients? Yes. Mm -hmm. What can you do for someone who's had a stroke and who may be, uh, you know, very seriously affected uh, both physically, mobility, as well as speech. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, so stroke is actually, um, you know, again, when you talk about a public health perspective, it's a leading cause of disability for adults uh, in the U.S. And it actually, if an occupational therapist works in, with adult clients, about 60% of the clients with whom they see have a stroke. So stroke is a very common reason that a person will have the services of an occupational therapist. And so depending on the severity of the stroke and the impact of the stroke, Occupational therapists are going to work with their ability to begin to do things for themselves again, starting at whatever level that's appropriate, because the the higher functional level that a person can attain through rehabilitation, then that helps lessen the burden of caregiving. And so that also helps afford more options as to then perhaps their discharge plan. Is it reasonable for them to go home with assistance? How much assistance do they need? And just as Carol has said, you know, working very closely with the client and the family to look at training to look at ways that the family can help manage that person's care as effectively and as safely as possible. I don't know if you saw in the Sunday newspaper, Express News, there was a wonderful op-ed piece uh, by a woman whose husband had a stroke, and she wrote about understanding the early symptoms. Uh, He showed symptoms for several days before he had a crushing uh, stroke, and she's Mm -hmm. trying to alert people uh, to be aware. And, And what were the symptoms? Uh, difficulty uh, with speech, difficulty uh, grabbing words, uh, uh, very active guy whose mobility was slightly affected uh, several days before the stroke, uh, someone who'd been the life of the party and suddenly was very, some of it sounds like depression, for it example. It was very subdued. He sounded very, yeah, very subdued. Uh, and what she's saying is get them screened, go to a doctor. Yeah, if you know, a sudden change in behavior for somebody who's right. older in particular exactly. uh, can be a sign for something else. Well, you know, talking about stroke, uh, you know, I've seen some what appeared to be devastating strokes, as Ron was just mentioning. But with occupational therapy, people can really come back a long way, especially with the, gro- the big motor skills. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the things that um, that neuroscience research has really given us a lot of insight to about in the past 20 years or so through functional MRIs. There's a much greater understanding of exactly the neural recovery process after stroke. And in a nutshell, what research really tells us is that after, after a person has had a stroke, for them to participate in things that are very task-specific. So practicing doing functional things. Like what? Um, in context. So maybe reaching for objects, practicing getting dressed, practicing brushing their teeth, any type of functional activity they do that requires skill that they do repetitively helps facilitate that neural recovery process. So now, re- Mm-hmm. Now, I was to say, we hear uh, the term that you, you're able to reprogram your brain. 
I never really understood sure. how that works. Yeah, and and so there's actually two mechanisms at work there. So part of that is that you have additional um, sprouting of the axons that are damaged from the stroke. Axons are uh, so part of the nervous system. So so that you actually grow additional parts of that nervous system and that regenerates or you have other parts of the brain that take over some of that function but we know that the best way for that to happen is really through rehabilitation and therapy because it takes that directed effort in very skilled activities that require a lot of repetition in other words what goes on in occupational therapy and physical therapy and speech language pathology i remember interviewing several years ago now uh, tim dirk who was the spurs coyote mm-hmm, absolutely. a wonderful guy mm-hmm. Uh, who was an incredible athlete, he too ignored uh, the the little mini strokes he was having. And he talked about uh, how tough it was to come back. And uh, he got his speech back, he got his movement back. He didn't think he was as far back as he seemed to be, but it took a lot of work. Absolutely. I mean, it's a tremendous amount of effort, and it's a tremendous amount of work for the patient, for the family, for the caregiver, and and the, the therapist working with the person. So the the issue is people obtaining those services and that's what's absolutely critical because we also see a lot of people who maybe don't have follow-up services that they would really benefit from we're going to talk more about not only what occupational therapists do occupational therapy month is what we're celebrating now bridget uh, pernick yoder and autumn Kleger with us both occupational therapists connected to the ut health science center carol zerniel i'm ron aaron you're listening to caregiver sos on air on 9 30 a.m the answer We are so pleased you're with us here on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zernio, talking about Occupational Therapy Month with Bridget Piernick-Yoder and Autumn Clegg, occupational therapists. And Carol, as you listen to this, uh, there's so much we don't know about occupational therapy. Well, we don't. And as I mentioned at the start of the show, I think that... Um, it's really un- underappreciated. Um, you know, this kind of work, it, you know, it's difficult to do with the patients and setting goals. And you've got so many emotions that um, the patients that you're dealing with, I'm sure, you know, are, are feeling and disappointment. And, uh, and on top of that, having to, you know, encourage them to overcome these obstacles. I was looking at, you know, some of the work that Autumn's been doing. You, know, you, you talk about um, traumatic brain injury. We were just talking about strokes, but traumatic brain injury is, is sometimes different than a stroke. It's going to affect a person differently, um, you know, as well as the ALS. Um, so can you talk a little bit about how do you, how do you adjust your, what you're doing for different types of injuries? I think we have to do that, um, not just with different injuries, but different patients. And so everybody's unique. Everybody's bringing in their situation, their personalities, and then adding the injury onto it. So definitely with traumatic brain injury, you know, we're maybe addressing initiation and the cognitive aspects more and getting them back to their daily routines of taking a shower and brushing their teeth and all those things um, that we all do in our daily life and getting those them back to that routine and cognitively working on sequencing in those aspects of it. And so sequencing being what comes in what order? Exactly. So I'm not going to put the toothbrush in my mouth and brush my teeth before I put the toothpaste on my toothbrush. Trying to teach our three-year-old twin boys that. (laughs) Difficult task. Oh, my gosh. And and, uh, getting them not to bite the toothbrush. They clamp down. Uh, Boy, it's like a steel trap if your finger's in the way. My daughter does the same thing. (laughs) Just amazing. It is amazing. Well, And, and, And when we brush our own teeth, assuming we haven't had any kind of debilitating uh, injury, you just do it automatically. It's autonomic reflexes that you brush, right? Someone had to teach us, though. Right, but the, yeah, those are very common activities that we do every day, and that is one of the challenges of occupational therapy is sometimes people look at the things that we do and we're focusing on, and they say, oh, well, that's simple. That's not a hard task to do, but just in your, in your example of brushing your teeth, I mean, that takes you know, physical skills, cognitive skills, perceptual skills. There's planning. It's a motor sequence, and so when those things are affected by different conditions, those daily tasks that we're used to doing very automatically do become really challenging for people. What about shaving for men? You have to teach them to shave again if they want to shave if they want to shave yes absolutely yes <laughs> and again it's sequential is it not autumn i mean you, you you don't start with a dry razor across your face right 
Now, yeah. you, you flip the switch on the electric razor and just do that. I can't. It's a good idea. Definitely much safer. Yeah, much I was safer. Say, it is yeah. safer. Yeah, giving the razor. So, um, Autumn, talk a little bit about you. We, we mentioned ALS earlier in the show. Um, so ALS is a disease where, you, uh, like Alzheimer's, where you're gradually losing ability, as opposed to stroke rehabilitation where you're actually coming back. Um, and gaining ability, and I think you you touched on it, but um, you know what? Besides some of the physical mechanics, what's your goal when working with somebody who you know is going to be losing ability down the line? You know, I think a lot of it is just <laughs> providing that hope, um, both to the client and the caregiver, and letting them know that through the therapist, they um, have a support system, and we're gonna be there. You know, it's not that they have this disease now, and they're they're on their own to figure out how to go from there. And so um, really working on making it easier for them, you know, energy conservation is a major thing that we do and with patients with ALS. And so, you know, not that they still can't take care of themselves, but we want them to choose to do the things that they enjoy and that quality of life and not spend two hours getting dressed when they can have somebody help them button their shirt and save that energy then so that night they can go out and watch their grandchild play baseball. Turns out it's more complicated buttoning someone else's shirt than your own though. Are you teaching caregivers how to do that? We assist in that and yeah and there are definitely aspects of self-care that is harder when you're helping somebody do it and like we said brushing teeth and shaving is one of those things that are harder to help people with. Exactly. I wish they had a video of me trying to brush my kids' teeth because ultimately they're upside down backwards and I'm reaching around trying to get it done uh, with yet not a lot of cooperation. Right. And then, you know, thinking about other occupations like helping somebody use the restroom and managing toileting and toilet hygiene. You know, those are very personal tasks that um, now a caregiver is having to help with and how to help the caregiver help their loved one do those aspects. So what are the – what – what do people not understand about occupational therapy? What are the, the over and over, what surprises, what surprises people when they come to work with you? Um, we, probably just about every occupational therapist who certainly works with adults has had this experience where you go and you meet the client and they say, oh, I'm retired. I don't need a job. You don't have to help me go back to work. <laughs> and so working on, you know, vocation and work tasks can be something occupational therapists do. But so that usually tends to be part of our introduction to people, just, just as it was today, that understanding that occupations are the, the daily things that you do that you need and want and are expected to do. So has there any thought of changing the name of your profession? Um, no, I don't believe so. I, I think I think it is uh, it has been embraced, and actually the profession is 99 years old. We'll be celebrating our centennial year next year, which is another thing that surprises people. Most people, just because occupational therapy may not be as familiar as some of the other disciplines, are surprised to, to hear that it's actually as old of a profession as it is. Now, can you just call if you think you need an occupational therapist, or uh, do you have to be referred through uh, physicians so they get their copay? Um, that's exactly right. <laughs> we need to change that law in Texas. Well, um, because, you know, uh, most people will need reimbursement for the services, so then they do need to have a physician referral. But people may see an occupational therapist, um, you know, in a clinic setting, in an outpatient setting, certainly in an inpatient setting, but also home health would be another area of service provision where people may receive occupational therapy services. But, but if we change the law so that occupational therapists could take insurance directly and not have to have a physician's referral, you'd eliminate the middle. Um, conceivably, yes, that tends to be a complicated issue, and that's not something that occupational therapists um, are are considering at that time. At this time, because they know it's something physical therapists are facing as well. It is, it is. So patients having direct access to yes. physical therapists, so that that is very important um, in the physical therapy profession. But that um, something to date is not something um, that occupational therapy is pursuing as a profession. So in the in the realm of people who are, let's say that they've gone to a skilled nursing facility for rehab Mm -hmm. or rehabilitation Mm -hmm. facility. There have been changes recently, have there not, in terms of improvement versus maintenance? I mean, it used to be that people, you know, working with occupational therapy, if they weren't improving, it used to be, oh, time's up, you don't get any more because you're not improving. That's changed, has it not? Well, the law has changed under a court decision, uh, Sibelius, which is now mandated that uh, it not have to show in terms of treatment progress, uh, but maintenance is enough to continue the, the Medicare payments. 
Yes, that's, that's the challenge. Yeah. Neither of you want to jump exactly. in on that because well, <laughs> it does get political. It, it, it's political, okay. and, and it's a complicated issue, and and it also comes down to looking at documentation, being able to demonstrate the skilled services that are being provided. But yes, you're absolutely right. That has been a change in the past few years. And so it, for the caregiver who faces a, uh, a facility or physician says, well, I'm sorry, we can't provide services anymore, yeah, you now have in, leverage. You're not improving. You know, you're not making mm-hmm. any improvement. You need to leave tomorrow. Um, which I'm leverage. thinking of a relative that that recently happened to, and I was trying to explain that you know improvement was not the standard anymore. Correct. Uh, mm-hmm. At least on the Medicare side. Right. So being aware of that and advocating for those services is very important. So what's the most interesting thing either of you have had to retrain someone uh, to do? Maybe it's cleaning the kitty litter or walking a dog or giving their cat their diabetes shots. What, what are some of the things that have been both the most challenging and the most fun? Yeah, that, that's the exciting thing about occupational therapy because you, you never know what you may encounter. Um, so I've had patients who were interested um, in tying fishing lures, which is not my skill set, but you learn with your patient. It's tough to do. It is very tough to do. And you talk about fine motor control and perception. I mean, but again, occupational therapists are going to be working with the things that the person wants to do. It's such a client-centered profession. So you learned to tie fishing lures? I absolutely did. You're going to see out there on the bay pretty soon? Um, I wouldn't say I was skilled at it, but <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, so it's really, it, and that's really where OT begins, is talking with that client and what is what we call their occupational history. So what are what are the activities that are important and necessary in their life? And it could be everything from their daily tasks, caring for their child, um, their leisure activities, their work activities. Probably one of my most challenging patients was some years ago. Um, it was a gentleman who had Guillain-Barre, and he was a food chemist. And so was very interested, you know, very motivated to go back to work. And so we went to work to look at his daily requirements. What well, were what his are requirements? The challenges he had with Guillain-Barre? Yeah, so he, he did have certainly some mobility challenges and some fine motor uh, difficulties, but a lot of fatigue. So it's just as Autumn was saying, you know, one one of the things that occupational therapists do is we really look at being able to adapt tasks and make modifications. So how could we look at his daily routine? How could we figure out what would be ways that would help conserve his energy? What would be ways to simplify the task? And we have to look at that whole picture with the client in whatever activity we're working on. Autumn? Go ahead. No, I'm sorry. I think for me... um, I was working with a young lady that was in a car accident, and so she was going to be in a wheelchair for a prolonged period of time, and she was a new mother. And so we really had to work on how she was going to be able to lift her baby and get into the crib when she's at the wheelchair level and change the diaper from different surfaces and that aspect. So it was a lot of creativity and us working together to problem solve and adapting those tasks that she had to do for her role as a mother. How did it work out? It was wonderful, and we brought her baby into rehab. And you know, once we practice on dolls and different things, and and showed yeah, that I don't want to drop the baby, right? <laughs> right. We practiced with dolls first, and then once she showed that, you know, we brought the baby in and tried it out, and with that support, and it was a lot of fun, and it worked well, and she went home as a great mother. How big was her smile? Huge. Yeah. And yours? Yes, it's it's rewarding for everybody. I would think that uh, for both of you. The, the challenge and then the accomplishment that you see in your patients has to give you incredible psychic income. Feels really good. It does. And even, you know, with my patients with ALS, just knowing um, that we're there and we are really part of their team and they are our team and their caregivers are our team and, and we're all there for each other is wonderful. I, you know, I, I, I think it's fantastic. Um, you know, if people have questions about occupational therapy, your profession, you know, is there a website? Where do you go to learn more about what you do? Sure. So there's certainly some great information. Um, our American Occupational Therapy Association is a terrific source of information about the profession. So that's AOTA.org. Uh, they certainly can uh, contact us at the Health Science Center um, in the Occupational Therapy Department. We have a website with some uh, very helpful information. Or if they have specific um, questions, they certainly can contact either Autumn or I directly, and we'd be happy to provide them with any information or resources that would be beneficial. And for someone who's listening, maybe they have a, a daughter or a granddaughter who might be interested 
interested in going into occupational therapy, what's the educational requirement of the time frame uh, and then the residency and training that's involved? Sure. So um, so to become an occupational therapist, a master's degree is required to enter the profession. So students apply to our program after completing their undergraduate degree. And we have students who come from science backgrounds, uh, from biology, kinesiology, but also from social science backgrounds, from psychology and anthropology. They have to complete a certain set of prerequisites, um, so anatomy, physics, uh, kinesiology, and then they apply to uh, get into occupational therapy school so um, males and females um, and uh, they would apply to the program and um, go through the application process and then our master's degree is a 30-month program here here in San Antonio and so it's about two years of coursework and we're again they're continuing in science education gross anatomy as well as learning how to become an occupational therapist and then they spend six months in a clinical affiliation and then graduate and take the national board and are qualified to practice as an occupational well, therapist. We are flat out of time. I appreciate both of you coming in and uh, Thank you. happy Occupational Therapy Month. That's pretty cool. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you to both uh, Bridget Piernick Yoder and Autumn Clegg, Occupational Therapist, O-T-A-O-T-A.org, A-O-T-A.org. If you want to know more about the profession or contact the UT Health Science Center if you want to get into it. Thank you both. Thank you for um, having us. Ron Aaron along with Carol Zerniel. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM. The answer up next. Take 10 with Dr. Jamie Heisman. If you're interested in getting fit and you care about seniors who are struggling, the WellMed Charitable Foundation's 2016 5K Run Walk for Seniors is just for you. Doctors agree physical fitness may be the magic bullet for so many health-related issues. So please join us for a family-friendly event Saturday, April 30th at 8 a.m. at the Wheatley Heights Sports Complex on the east side of San Antonio. The event benefits programs supporting seniors and caregivers in our community and meet special guest, District 124 State Rep. Ina Minjares. There will be plenty of food, games, prizes, fitness activities, hey, it's pet-friendly, and a whole lot more. Plus, seniors age 60 and over and children 10 and younger run or walk for free. So the cost is just $25 for regular registration through April 27th and $30 on race day. If you prefer to sleep in, it's just $25 for sleepwalkers. It's all at the Wheatley Heights Sports Complex on the east side of San Antonio, to register, go to WellMedCharitableFoundation.org. Well, as we conclude each of our Caregiver SOS On Air programs with Take 10, we're delighted to welcome on board with me and Carol Zerniel, Dr. Jamie Heisman, a nationally known psychotherapist and expert in not only addictions, but in caregiving as well. And we're delighted, as uh, Carol tossed out a topic off the air, uh, to share it with you now. Uh, Dr. Jamie often talks about the three-legged stool balancing the elements involved in caregiving. And, and Carol, that's a pretty good topic. Well, you know, I think about it a lot um, because Jamie talks to us about feeling out of balance. We know as caregivers we do feel out of balance. Um, and why, you know, just why does that happen? So, so Jamie, tell us, what is that three-legged stool that you talk about? Well, it's all about balance. It's exactly that word because that's how stools and chairs stand up and support our weight. And the three legs are your mind, your body, and your spirit. Now, the spirit can also be your, the social side. But no matter what, it's three legs and it holds up a stool. And if we're not paying attention to all three, we all know that chairs can't stand on two legs. And so caregivers can't either. Well, so when we're thinking about a well-rounded, um, you know, the physical aspects of caregiving, and, and this month is Occupational Therapy Month. We were talking to some occupational therapists earlier, um, and they, we were talking about the physical aspects of caring and caregiving and, and how difficult that is when you talk about helping somebody transfer, helping somebody, you know, in and out of the car, in and out of the bathroom, in and out of the shower. There's a lot of physicality to caregiving many times. It's huge, uh, Carol. And what we don't talk about is while they're taking care of somebody else's health and wellness, um, they're at risk, uh, at higher risk for for their own health and wellness. In fact, you know, they have an increased alcohol use um, uh, tendency. 
Um, you can get diabetes. Your diabetes can get worse. You can have heart disease. I mean, as a caregiver, we also are at risk entirely if we're not taking care of ourselves while we're taking care of somebody else. And you're right, too, that we just jump into it head first without knowing exactly what to do and how to do it, lifting and pushing and calling and at the same time trying to keep our own lives balanced. And so on the, the physical aspects that you're talking about, um, you know, it can be very difficult taking care of our physical health. We don't, we just don't think about it because we're so busy on these all of these other tasks. But what you were talking about is if we put two groups together, caregivers and non-caregivers, and they're the same age, or they're exactly alike, the caregivers are going to have more diabetes, they're going to have more heart disease, they're going to have more stroke, they're going to have more alcoholism, um, and that relates back to their physical health. They're just not taking care of it. And stress. And stress, and and the impact of stress on your immune system, which can lead to different illness and being more susceptible to different diseases. Well, knowing this going in, Dr. Jamie, what then uh, can a caregiver do to don the armor to uh, protect their well-being? Well, let's take the health side first, Ron. I mean, no matter whether you're a caregiver or not, eating a balanced diet and uh, eating right nutritionally may be the the number one thing. I, I know for a fact that when I start getting sick or isolating or or not doing things for myself that's the first thing that seems to suffer is is a balanced diet so that's the first thing i would say is we deal with our health and wellness the second thing is to get plenty of rest you know what a caregiver does not do is is often sleep you know uninterrupted for eight hours because they have what you just said stress and anxiety and or they're taking care of somebody else who's waking up in the middle of the night you know getting their needs met or needing to get their needs met. Also, finally, you know, exercise. I mean, exercise is something we should all be mindful of and, and do things around. Um, but caregivers are really, you know, loath to find time, if you will, to, to do that exercise. And yet it improves their mood and allows them to, to, to balance their lives in a way that, that other things don't. Well, you, you said the word mood. So let's move on and talk a little bit about um, your emotional health because that one really... You know, it's it's kind of like it's invisible, but it really gets beat up throughout on this caregiving journey. I think it's huge. In fact, you know, if you had to pick one or the other, obviously it'd be very difficult to say which is more important. I know your health and wellness is critical, and um, but your psychological health and wellness, and what Ron mentioned before, this 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 four letter word called stress. I know it's five, but it's always going to be four in my world. Um, stress and anxiety and how it plays on our existing issues as, as a human being. Uh, we tend to, to shift from a human being, go to the human doing, and, and, and not at all look at our own, our own psychology and what it's doing to us and, and the issues of grief and potential loss. So the first thing I would say, Carol, that you have to do for the second leg is get yourself extraordinarily good support, whether that comes in the form of a therapist, a coach, a geriatric care manager. Make sure you don't do this alone. Now, if you've just joined us, you're listening to Take 10. Uh, we conclude each of our Caregiver SOS on-air programs with Dr. Jamie Heisman, Carol Zernil, and me, Ron Aaron, talking about a topic of interest to caregivers and families, and the one we are taking up right now is balance in caregiving, the three-legged stool. And you mentioned, Carol, uh, the emotional side, and there is a tremendous emotional stress using the word stress again, put on caregivers. Well, there is, and, and um, as Jamie has mentioned, you're also bringing along the, the baggage of all of those familial relationships that you've had over the years. So if you never got along with your mother and suddenly you're taking care of your mother, you're not all of a sudden going to be best friends, right, Jamie? No, absolutely not. In fact, the triggers and cues will start coming fast and furiously for that family of origin issues, we call the childhood issues that were never resolved. So now not only are you taking on helping somebody who you may or may, you know, you may have mixed feelings about, um, but you're doing it full time and it's going to trigger clinical issues that are desperately going to need attention. So you start running the same verbal scripts you had as a kid with your mother. You do. What we'd say is you tend to recreate your dramas and traumas until you intervene on them, which is basically a a, a clinical way of saying, go get some help, because you're probably going to create a pattern that happened in childhood when you become a caregiver if you don't. Well, and you also talk a lot about guilt. 
Um, and that can creep up on us. We're not doing enough. We're doing too much. We resent it. Um, you know, what's, what's the role of guilt in caregiving? Well, guilt is a diagnostic indicator. I think when guilt is high, um, you're, it's saying to ourselves, we're not doing enough for ourselves, meaning that there's a correlation in psychology between guilt and self-esteem. So the higher your guilt, usually the lower your self-esteem, and the higher your self-esteem, usually the lower your guilt. So it's, it's a real barometer or, or a way to actually see or experience, if you will, how well am I actually taking care of myself in this caregiving experience? Guilt is one of those words we know it when we see it, but what is it? What, what's happening? What causes guilt? Well, obviously guilt is, uh, it could be cultural, Ron. It could be religious guilt. Uh, it's obviously things that we don't think that we do right. In fact, there's shame and guilt seems to be often connected. Uh, we're not doing enough. You know, maybe we could actually help this person that we love so much in terms of their disease, but really we can't. And so by not being able to let go and not being able to, to turn this over and not being able to take care of ourselves in the process, we tend to get this magical thinking that we are our deities or our gods and can actually do something about it, and we get lost in our thoughts. And so guilt is really about that, not, you know, thinking we're not enough. Well, in this last uh, minute and a half that we have left, talk a little bit about the social or spiritual side of caregiving, and what is that? You know, what does that look like? Well, since spiritual so has so many connotations to it, you know, I'm going to start with the social first, and, and we can work our way there because social is about connecting, and I think it's the biggest issue uh, for elders, seniors, caregivers today. Uh, that when we isolate, we actually are, are 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 doing more harm to ourselves, our mind, body, and spirit um, than than we think. And we have to be connected. And the beauty of getting connected, and the beauty of of being in a social setting, is to pick up a phone and and call and look for a support group. I think caregivers vitally need you know the first order of concern, a group of people that truly understand them and knows and know what they're going through. Now, speaking of that, you have a new support group starting up with the teleconnection program. We do. We have a free telephone support group. Uh, we're looking for members right now. So if there's any caregiver that's listening that would like to have an easy way to connect with other caregivers on the telephone, um, go ahead and, and check out our website at caregiversos.org, and you can get signed up. And it's free. And it's free. Dr. Jamie, thank you. Fascinating. The three-legged stool. What do you think of a support group on the phone? I think it's fast. That's fascinating, you know, in and of itself. I think, frankly, the beauty of of, of always being on. I, I prefer people to be face to face, as Carol does as well. There's nothing like that. Nothing substitutes for that. But if you can't get there, get the lily pad, which is actually on the phone. You can stay anonymous. Okay. You can actually be honest with your emotions. It's a perfect thing. Congratulations, Carol. Bingo. Stop you right there. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air. Ron Aaron with Carol Zernil and Dr. Jamie Heisman. We're on 9:30 a.m. The answer. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel, for another edition of Caregiver SOS On Air on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.